Before we dive in, a quick shout out to Elastic Perception for supporting our show. Check out their amazing astral projection course link is down below. Enjoy the podcast. Today's guest is Paul Wallace, international best-selling author, most known for his work on paleocontact and the origins of human history. What he does is uncover the truth behind where we came from, the mysteries that the church, the governments, and all sorts of other powers that be have tried to keep hidden from us. Because you go to the earlier stories of the Bible, for instance, and they echo what you'll find in the Sumerian stories and the Vedic stories and the Norse stories. And that's the arrival of advanced beings who then carve up planet Earth, and they are somewhat a competitive with one another for power and resources. They're all stories of these beings who have colonized and who are competing with one another, and human beings are getting caught in the crossfire. It's an absolute banger podcast if you've ever wanted to know what the Bible is truly talking about, ancient aliens, what this means to you, all the powers that you potentially have within you, your human potential. Paul does an incredible job on this. He's written tons of best-selling books, and I mean tons. And what he's done resonates with so many people because it changes what is possible for you. Leave us a like, comment down below. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Check out our Rumble and support our sponsors. My friends, we will see you guys on the next one. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back. Um, my voice is slowly on the mend, but we have here with us today the great Paul Wallace. Paul, what's going on? How are you? Good day, Will. It's great to be with you today. Yes. Yeah, so as we were discussing uh, before we, we got started, I have known your work for some time without even knowing it was you. And so, you know, through a crazy series of events, here we are, and there's a lot for us to go through. And so I want to kick it over to you first to let everybody know who you are, and then we'll get into all my crazy questions. Well, people know me as the paleo contact guy. And paleo contact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other, other civilizations. And by that, I mean extraterrestrial civilizations. And what surprises people is my route into this topic because my background is in the world of Christian ministry. I was for 33 years in church-based ministry. I worked as a church doctor, a theological educator, an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. That's one down from a bishop. And so it is quite unusual when a senior churchman steps forward and says, wait a minute, guys, I think a whole chunk of what's going on in the Bible is really not about God at all. It's ancient recollections of E.T. content. And it was my work in hermeneutics, studying the ancient texts of the Bible and their ancient sources that pulled me onto this controversial territory. Yeah. Wow. So that's exactly where we, where I'd like to start, because obviously I don't know that this is anything at all. What does the, what's the standard, uh, I don't know how to put this. What is the standard belief in the Christian ministry? Like I was, I went to Catholic school. My family was by no means uh, overtly Christian or religious in any, any, any sense, but I don't recall any connection to extraterrestrials. How do you come upon this and what do we have? What is pointing you towards that way? Well, for most of the history of Christianity, ET contact or a populated universe, those ideas have been completely taboo. But in the beginning of Christianity, they were not. If you go to early church fathers like Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, 
Marcion, they were all quite clear that in the Bible, by which I mean the Old Testament, Hebrew canon, they were very clear that among the stories of that canon were stories of other kinds of entities that really merited a serious study, and those stories shouldn't be read at face value as God's stories. So that belief was part of the mainstream of Christianity in the beginning. Many of those church fathers were highly influenced by Plato, and Plato was a proponent of paleocontact. He argued that not only did we have contact in the deep past, but that we were genetically altered through contact with other species. These early church fathers had no problem with that at all. However, unfortunately, votes went the wrong way in the first three or four centuries, and a lot of those church fathers were pushed to the margins, and it became a taboo right up until 2009, when from out of the blue, the Roman Catholic Church convened a colloquium. Uh, this was a symposium of top theologians and academics and scholars to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And when they did that, you could have knocked me down with a feather because only 400 years ago, they were burning people at the stake for merely suggesting there might be intelligent life on other planets. And that was one of the things goaded me and said, come on, Paul, you need to get back and look at this. Because for a long time, I'd suspected there might be some other kinds of being washing around in the biblical text. But when they did that and came out with very strong statements after that symposium, I thought, I have to get on top of this because I've known there was something here for a long time. I need to begin connecting the dots and finding out what our ancestors were really on them. So with that being said, first off, what spurred this on? Why in 2009? What happened? Was there someone, is this a nod to someone saying, hey, are they trying to get people like you to look into this or what happened? It was really interesting because it gave the appearance that Benedict XVI and his administration were expecting some other authority to make a disclosure. And they wanted to get on the front foot and say, look, there's no issue here. There's no problem. It just means the creator has been busier than we thought. And we've got more brothers and sisters than we thought we did. That was uh, sort of the, the short version of what the spokespeople for the curious said when they stepped forward after the symposium. They wanted to prepare people for statements coming from somewhere else, and then there were no statements coming from anywhere else. So I think they'd anticipated something that hadn't happened, and then everything went quiet again. And now it's quite hard to go back and find the interviews with people like Jose Gabriel Funes, the director of the Vatican's um, observatory, or Guy Consolmagno, the senior astronomer, or uh, Corrado Balducci, Vatican senior advisor in paranormal ministry. They all made really far-reaching statements about ET contact, which you could read in 2009. Now, a bit harder to find. Today's sponsor is Elastic Perception. If you're watching this podcast, you're probably fascinated with stories of guys like Tom Campbell and Robert Monroe getting out of their bodies, astral projecting, and going to explore the entire universe. And if you've ever wanted to try and do something like this yourself, you're aware of how hard it is to find good content, which is why we have to thank today's sponsor, Elastic 
Perception. What Florentine and the guys at Elastic Perception have done is break down the entire process of astral projection into a way and format that you can follow from anywhere you are at. You're going to learn different methods. You're going to learn the understanding of these ancient teachings and practices. You're going to learn what this means to you right now, spiritually, how it can affect your life directly. Everything you've ever wanted to learn and do within astral projection, you can find here in this course in its simple bite-sized format, and then on top of it, something I have never seen is that they can offer coaching with experts in this field for you to progress in your journey. Check out Elastic Perception. Link is right down below. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, we live in this world now where I I remember having this discussion on other podcasts uh, about being a kid growing up in the 90s and how the mention of UFOs, how, how far from the mainstream uh, these things were, and now we have all these, I don't know what's going on, congressional hearings, all this, some things up, we don't understand what, no one believes in what the government says anymore. We know clearly if you know something, then you're hiding it. And then what are you, now why are you telling us this? It's such a mess. And so when I look at that and I look at the church and, you, and when you start to really look into like the power that the church has had over the centuries, how it still continues to have it, they just don't have an army, you know, they use different means and you start to wonder what is going on? Uh, so from your, you, you know, vantage point, do you have any idea of what their goal is on potentially releasing? Because if what you've been studying is true and they know this, what is end game? What's going on? Do you have any sort of sense of, of that? Well, <laughs> it depends who you're talking to when you ask what the end game is, because, uh, any authority, whether we're talking about, uh, the Pentagon or the Roman Catholic church is a community of people with a spectrum of ideas and opinions as to what the right way forward is. So clearly right now, there's a big push and pull going on within the military intelligence community in the USA as to how much disclosure should be allowed. There are people like Thomas Monheim, the uh, inspector general of the intelligence community, who is leaning towards more disclosure. And it's really thanks to him that we had the July 26th hearing with the David Grush complaint in view. And we had those three experts, David Fravor, Ryan Graves, and David Grush speaking to uh, the Congressional House subcommittee hearing. There are people clearly wanting more information to reach the public than in the past. And then there are others, um, such as... Arrow's previous leader, who have wanted to push back and say, no, we need to keep this quiet. And in fact, we don't even want information about the program, the reverse engineering program, to be shared from unit to unit within the military intelligence community, let alone briefing Congress, let alone briefing the public. So people like Chris Mellon have done what they can to push the conversation forward. Uh, we're out of the era of death threats so that the physicists involved in the reverse engineering program, people like Jacques Vallée, Gary Nolan, can speak to the press. And, or James Lukatsky can speak to the press and say, this is the work we've been doing. This is the materials we have. This is what we're investigating. Whereas when I was a boy at school, if they'd tried to do that, it would have been quietly suicided. Uh, this is something I know about because I lived in uh, Amersham, Buckinghamshire in the UK. This was at the time of Ronald Reagan's Star Wars initiative, the SDI initiative. 
clearly the, the questions around that was, what is that program about? Is that about having weapons in space where we can sort of attack our enemies on Earth? Or are we defending ourselves against an attack from off planet? Because that seemed to be the impression that the president had created. And I lived close to this top secret research facility working on that program and 25 people involved in that program committed suicide over quite a short period. And the families refused to believe these were suicides. And the, um, I think it was may have been Clive Jenkins, the union leader called for a public inquiry into these suicides because he said it's statistically impossible that they were all suicides. And Margaret Thatcher said, oh no, we've, we've had a look at it and there's nothing wrong. So that's what I grew up with. And now all of a sudden you've got Jacques Vallée, Gary Nolan briefing the press, Lou Elizondo briefing the press, Chris Mellon speaking freely. You've got Pam Ashed, the former chief of space security for Israel, stepping up to the microphone and saying Israel and the States are in contact and they have been for more than seven decades. A decade ago, it was the Russian prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev on an open mic saying we're in contact. Every new prime minister of Russia is given a dossier detailing the uh, spacefaring communities that we are already in contact with. He wasn't debunked. He wasn't sacked. We didn't have Putin going on camera and saying the prime minister would had a few too many vodkas and I distanced myself from nothing like that. So there's been a massive, massive shift, and there is far more now in the public domain than I could even have imagined a decade ago. Meanwhile, in the churches, it's still a taboo. And I think for a lot of people, it's still a topic that you bring it up, and it's just something to be ridiculed, laughed at. We're still in an era where people experience close encounters. Don't feel free to mention it to anybody because they don't expect to be taken seriously. So it's quite a cocktail of things going on at the moment. And I think public are really having to race to catch up with quite how much disclosure has happened just in the last five or six years. Yeah. And it's such a crazy thing to think that yeah, disclosure and all these statements, these official statements that we could never have had, we have now. Not much has changed in anyone's everyday life. And the, the statements that they're saying are insane because you really could not imagine someone saying that, right? Like, just like you were saying during that time, maybe during the Reagan administration or during the Clinton administration. I know that guy was supposedly into UFOs uh, himself. And, and so what I want to ask you now is what about this overall story? So could you, could you give us what you believe to be the gist of the story of our origins uh, as you've seen it, as far as what the sometimes called ancient aliens uh, or extraterrestrials had for us in our origins and our history, do you have any under any good understanding of what that truly is? Sure. Well, my information comes from the world's ancestral narratives, so from uh, indigenous narratives, world mythology, from the texts of the Bible, and in my studies, I found an incredible overlap among those stories. And the gist of the overlap is this, that life in the cosmos is the norm rather than the exception. This is the theory of panspermia held to by 
people as authoritative as Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA. He argued the timelines for our planet are not long enough for life as we know it to have originated here, to have come here from somewhere else. And many of our ancestral stories say exactly the same thing. Go to the Zulu story of Uncle Nkulu, it says the same. In the Bible, it's the same. The Mayan story of the Pope Olvu is the same. Go to Plato, he says the same. And so the idea is that whenever the genetic coding for biological, conscious, intelligent life lands in an hospitable environment, that's a planet with water, essentially, it will generate forms of life similar to the ones we're familiar with on planet Earth. And then there are places that develop life sooner and the uh, species there are more advanced, reach a technological age sooner, and then very often they will visit and intervene in the stories on other planets. And according to the texts I've studied, that's exactly what happened here. The genetic coding landed on our planet, started generating forms of life, and then at many points we have been visited by other forms of life who have tweaked what they found here. Just as we have fine-tuned the cat we breed and eat and the dogs that we breed and live with, there's been some interventions here and very focused interventions to create a species intelligent enough to work for a more advanced species, but not so intelligent that we didn't want to. And that's the beginnings of the human story. And then others have come along and they've intervened to grade our experience, to make us more intelligent, more conscious. Plato speaks about this. The story is there in Genesis 3, an upgrade so that we would be smarter, but not too smart. Same in the mind, smarter, but not too smart. And so the picture that I put together from all these sources is we are earthlings with a little bit of something else that's given us, homo sapiens, an edge over our animal neighbors and made us what we are today. So, in, which is fascinating, obviously, and it makes me ask the question, what was the need to hide this? It, what, what are we being, you know, because you only hide something if you, for a reason. Things are hidden for reasons. They're not generally, unless we forgot, right? But it does seem that we live in a world where knowledge, as much knowledge as we do have and, and can have with the internet and, and if you go search for things, that things are still occult and there's occult knowledge. And what was the reason for that, do you believe? That's a great question. Because if you want to hear the story I've just told, generally, you have to go to grassroots stories. You have to go to indigenous traditions. And then the elders of those communities will tell you those stories. Uh, in some parts of the world, you'll hear this when you're initiated into your tribal culture, but you won't be taught it at school and you won't hear it on the TV. But an example of how the narrative was suppressed and why it was changed can be found in the Bible. And in my book, The Eden Conspiracy, I spend a lot of time on this, showing how the Bible actually records the earlier narrative of paleocontact and then tells us how it was changed. So if you read the books, for instance, of Jeremiah and uh, one and two kings and Ezra, you will find out that there was a great reform uh, within the religion of Judaism and that 
you go to a prophet like Jeremiah, and he is lamenting what 7th and 8th century BCE Judaism looked like. He laments the fact that on every high hill and under every green tree, from every fortified town to every garrison city, there are installations commemorating paleocontact. He laments the fact that there are standing stones right across the Levant recording the places where his ancestors had met with advanced beings from other planets. And he lamented the fact that the Jewish people remembered some of these beings in a very positive light, Asherah in particular. This was something he thought was very bad, and his Yahwist king thought it was very bad as well. A Yahwist king came along called Hezekiah. He believed in this uh, one being, Yahweh, who was one of a panoply of beings from the past, who had conquered part of the Levant and governed over Hezekiah's ancestors. Hezekiah worships him and says, why should any of my people worship anybody else? Let's get rid of these installations. Let's knock down these other temples, get rid of the other priesthoods. Everyone is going to worship my God. And so there's a ritual reform to change how the Jewish people worship. This then rolls on into a reform of the scriptures as well, so that by the time you get to his grandson Josiah, they start revising the book of the laws of Yahweh to try and airbrush out this memory of paleocontact, except this whole process is spelled out in the Bible. So you read the Bible closely enough, and the narrator has guaranteed that you and I will never forget that in the beginning, Judaism was a canon of memory of E.T. contact, and that it was changed from King Hezekiah to King Josiah into a monotheistic religion instead. Now, why, why would he do that? And why would he choose Yahweh out of all these other beings? Could have chosen Asherah, Baal, Chamath, Dagon. Why would he pick? a violent colonizer, which is what he did. And the answer is this, that he was wanting a kingdom he could manage. He was wanting a kingdom he could control. And by the time we got to his grandson, Josiah, he was being advised by the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. So from time to time, Josiah became king, by the way, at the age of eight. So he got into the habit of taking advice from uh, Uncle Hilkiah, the high priest, and Shaphan, the royal scribe, both of whom are Yahwists. So from time to time, the high priest would come along and say, Sire, I've identified another threat to your authority over the kingdom. Would you like me to take care of it? And every time Josiah said, Oh, Uncle Hilkiah, what would I do without you? Thank you so much. That meant demolishing another temple, slaughtering another priesthood, getting a tighter control over the narrative, all the tithes of the Jewish people throughout the land now coming to a single temple, the one in Jerusalem under the one high priest and the one king. So essentially you've got a power grab and a wealth grab so that what you end up with is a nice governable theocracy with one God, one king, one high priest, one temple, that's what any ruler would like to see. So now you can't go anywhere else for alternative news. You can't find another priesthood or a bunch of prophets to give you a different view of things. There's only one belief acceptable, and it's the one coming out of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that was the process. 
And so read it closely enough, and we can never forget that in the beginning, Judaism was something else. It was the memory of the Tseva Hashemayim, the armies of sky people who came and governed over our ancestors. Wow. Uh, the thing that comes to mind to me is obviously the struggle that was going on in the past. Where are they now? What happened to that and how, what is the interaction like today? I mean, that's probably something that everybody is curious about because it, it, there's no way that it stopped. But that's a great question because you go to the earlier stories of the Bible, for instance, and they echo what you'll find in the Sumerian stories and the Vedic stories and the Norse stories. And that's the arrival of advanced beings who then carve up planet Earth and they are somewhat competitive with one another for power and resources. So we have this in the Bible as well, where the Elohim, the powerful ones, are all given portions of land, and then they go to war against each other for more land, more resources. Yahweh is one of the Elohim, and he's given short thrift. He gets a people group with no land. So he then has to go to war in order to get any resources at all. And so the stories of the powerful ones in the Bible or the sky people in the Sumerian texts, the kings and the Vedas, they're all stories of these beings um, who have colonized and who are competing with one another and human beings are getting caught in the crossfire. So how does that relate to what's happening now? Well, certainly we still have proxy wars like that. Because you go to the grassroots of most international conflicts and you'll find they're not international conflicts at all. They are conflicts among the powers. Who has what power over what land and what people? That's what most wars are about. But you talk, I mean, just to make it less controversial, if we go into history and into the First World War, there's the famous story of the Christmas truce, where it's coming up to Christmas and the working-class boys from Germany don't want to kill the working-class boys from Britain at Christmas. And so uh, flags are waved, and people come out into no man's land, and they decide what they want to do is play soccer together and exchange gifts and sing Christmas carols. Because those two sets of working-class boys had no argument with each other. The argument was among the powers over who had what land and what control. And you can bet your bottom dollar that after the Christmas truce, the higher-ups guaranteed peace would never break out again like that in the context of the First World War. It would only break out when the higher-ups was time for peace. Meanwhile, everyone had to carry on slaughtering each other. And a lot of wars, if not most wars, are like that. Uh, up to the present day, uh, I might add. So the question is, why is it happening? Is it because we're still under the sway of uh, ET visitors? Uh, I'm of the view that our ancestors gave us these stories because they believed that no understanding of the present is complete until you realize there is a hidden hand, is an ET influence in our geopolitics. But it's not in your face like it was in the deep past, because you go to the early stories and you've got beings who are not human governing over, governing over human beings. And this continues maybe thousands of years, but we reach a point where they disappear, they hand over to human successors. So in the Bible, you've got Saul, the first human king, 
in the Sumerian story, you've got Gilgamesh, a crossover king, who's part human, part sky people, and then after that, it's human kings and queens. But as I show in the Eden Conspiracy, we still have strings being pulled, influences behind closed doors who are guaranteeing that what our human kings and queens, the presidents, prime ministers are doing, won't stray too far from what our ancient colonizers had in mind. Before I go into one of my other questions, how are they pulling the strings? This is an even more fascinating question because for the people who believe <clears throat> aliens are either among us or having some sort of touch, how, right? Do you know, uh, like a controversial figure like Henry Kissinger just passed away, right? And this guy lived to a hundred and you can find him in every single conspiracy <laughs> on earth, right? And so it makes you wonder uh, how, because in, on the one end, on the one end, I want to believe that uh, there's some, there's some insane or, or maybe not insane. I don't know. Cause I never looked into but the conspiracy theories in the UK about the reptilian royal family, whatever it is they want to, they, the, they want to say, I haven't looked into it enough to even know what the true, uh, theory is stating. But then am I to believe that they sit down with the king and say, Hey, or an extraterrestrial sit down. Hey, listen, we're going to need to attack this country over here because listen, I just, I kind of need it done. So I'm going to need you to, but is it, is it done like this or are they controlled? Is it, you know, because that, that's something that I've never seen truly addressed in a more practical sense. If this is happening, how? Through dreams, through what? How? Yes. Well, look, there are a few places you can go for answers to that kind of question. If you go to primitive Christianity, you'll find documents that today are called Gnostic. And that really just means these books didn't make it into the canon. And, and some of them have, have aspects in common. And one of the ideas that you'll find in Gnostic, Gnostic literature is the idea of beings called archons. And these are essentially parasitic beings, energy-based beings that rather like a virus feed off biological life. And what archons feed off is our lower emotional vibrations. So to put it simply, an archon wants to manipulate your thinking so that you become more aggressive, more fearful, more anxious, and then it feeds off that emotion. That's the idea of the archons. You can hear echoed in some of the demonology of, of the New Testament. And I, I think there's a truth in it. Uh, it's uh, to be found in the Hebrew canon as well. You go to 1 Kings 22, and there's a story that, of the Sky Council and clearly on that council is a range of non-human beings who are governing over Project Earth, and their main job seems to be fomenting war. And there's an entity on that council who says, I can trick this king into invading this other country on the basis of false intelligence. And so the committee says, okay, have a go, because that's what they want, because they will then feed off all the low energy that comes from war and all the horror of that. And I think that what we find in the Gnostic literature, 1 Kings 22, is true. I think that to the present day, it's quite possible for one nation to invade another on the basis of false intelligence because the aggression and paranoia has been stoked up. That's the emotional place the leaders are in. So I think it can work that way. But then I think in the past, 
we had a situation where our visitors, our colonizers were face-to-face with the general public. I think it's possible they're still face-to-face contact, but not with the general public, with the elites. And so if I go to the work of somebody like Robert Kirk, uh, this is what he argued. Now, Robert Kirk um, was not some wild conspiracy theorist. He was a Presbyterian minister in the 1600s in Scotland. Anyone who knows anything about the history of religion knows I've just described a very conservative person indeed. Presbyterian minister, 1600s, Scotland. But he was a real pastor. And he listened to the people who lived in Aberfoyle in Scotland and realized that the grassroots story there was a story of contact with other kinds of being. And it was a story of abductions. It was a story that included a hybridization echoes all around the world. And the picture was so coherent and so compelling, he wrote a book about it. And the book he wrote was called The uh, Secret Commonwealth. And in that book, he argued a story that can be found in cultures all around the world, not just in Celtic story, not just in Scotland, all around the world. He argued that our world is governed by hidden elites, human elites, who then influence our visible governments. That won't be a surprise to most people listening to this. But then he goes a step further. He says the elites are influenced by non-human presence. And there may be face-to-face contact or remote communication contact. And when you look at the artwork of many ancient cultures, such as, for instance, the Jaguar dynasty from the Yucatan Peninsula, or some of the stories surrounding the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible, it's clear that the elites are seeking to broker remote communication with other kinds of entity so that they can get their marching orders. And I think what's happening in the present might not be so different to that. Uh, it's so good that you mentioned the Ark of the Covenant because it's one of my questions. I'm curious of the technology <clears throat> because that's kind of also where we're headed. The technologies that were used back then, there's that tremendous story in the Bible of the, what seems like, was it the chariot? Is it Elijah describing the chariot uh, and the the four horse? Uh, I I can't quite remember it. Do you know? Yes. uh, Well, Elijah gets taken away in a chariot of fire through, when you listen to the description, description, a modern person would say, didn't that just describe a wormhole? Didn't that just describe a portal? That was a piece of technology he flew off it. And we've had, you know, 2,000 years of Bible translators thinking they're describing a spiritual phenomenon and struggling for the vocabulary. The great thing, though, with these texts, we can go back to the Hebrew, we can go back to the Greek and say, I've got a pretty shrewd idea what I'm looking at. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you hear stories like that and it makes you wonder, of course, you know, like if there's a chariot, okay, chariot, something that moves, something that carries, like, and you start to try and piece together what could this be if if I had to describe what I'm, what I'm seeing without the words in the vernacular that I have now today. But I'm even more curious as to like the Ark of the Covenant. What a crazy story just in and of itself. This thing that seems to possibly be some sort of technology. What was it for? What was it used for? And so my, my, my question is, number one, anything that you found on that? And number two, uh, why don't we have more technologies or do we like, what are the pyramids? What are all these symbols, signs, tablets? What sort of technology did they have and how come we don't have more, more of it in our hands or do we? 
Well, that's right. Or do we? That's right. You and I, Will, might not have that technology in our hands, but when we start talking about the program, uh, we realize that we have more technology than we have been told about. But to go to the Ark of the Covenant, it's really intriguing because with the descriptions of that in the Bible and the descriptions of the Urim and the Thummim, it seems that the writers understand that these are some kind of technology. They understand what the function was, remote communication, but they're not sure how it worked. And the way they talk about how these things were used suggests that even the priests using them weren't sure how they worked. And I've come to the conclusion, and I argue this in the Eden Conspiracy, that the Ark of the Covenant is very similar to the carvings you can find in um, Yashalan and ancient sites in the Yucatan Peninsula, where you've got depictions of people using not technology, but facsimiles of technology. They have a cultural memory of a time when visitors could do remote communication through a thing that looks like a Bluetooth. And so they made something to look like a Bluetooth. They couldn't get it to work. And so they would wear the thing, but then do a bloodletting to uh, induce an altered state of consciousness, because then they can start having contact experiences. And it's little clues like that. Similarly, in the Bible, you've got the Ark of the Covenant there. It's not working. So what do you do? You drench the tents with cannabis oil so that you're breathing in this infusion of that and other oils until you're high and experiencing contact phenomena. Now we might get a word from Yahweh. So these are clues that what they were handling was facsimiles of technology, recollections of a previous civilization's tech, which they couldn't reproduce and couldn't get to work. And so they're using altered states of consciousness instead. Why don't we have more technology? Well, I think generally when the technology of previous civilizations gets found, it gets sequestered. And I argue in Escaping from Eden, that's one of the things that happened in the 2003 incursion into Iraq, that one of the reasons we were there was to get hands on the ancient tech described in the Sumerian narratives and the biblical narratives of Babel, which is really a story about stargates and portal technology. U.S. military intelligence, clearly, if they thought there was even a remote possibility that such technology had survived, well, you'd want that in your hands and not in enemy hands, wouldn't you? And without giving away uh, too many secrets, uh, there were units deployed in that incursion whose job was to get hands on sites and artifacts to get them out of Iraq and back to somewhere where maybe they could be reverse engineered. It reminds me of this this story. I I, and I can't quite remember now. I've I've not found it yet, and I haven't really searched too much. But uh, there's another historian, someone who does in depth research, just like you, Dan Carlin, I believe. I think he he has a history podcast. Now, his is fairly mainstream, telling stories of like Genghis Khan and maybe Alexander the Great and things like this. But the weird thing that that happened to him, if I'm remembering this correctly, he was summoned into a think tank uh, by the government at one point. And at the, at the think tank, was all these military generals and all these, you know, this upper brass of, uh, of you know, the, the military and other 
uh, NSA, CIA, et cetera. But they had filled the panel also with people like yourself, priests, people who had researched demonology, all this other stuff. And so he was like, what, what, first off, what is that? Like, what, what's going on here? And why are you here? Like, why are we having this meeting? And, and then he, he mentioned that I think there were also, uh, the the wives of some of the the military generals and and then there and he said everyone was really interested in this stuff as if there was something going on there and it was it, it seemed to me that he was having like this kind of like realization like what is going like why are you guys so interested in this and it just gives another it's just another notch on the yeah, something's there like w they don't tend to be interested in things that aren't uh going to give them some sort of either power money, influence, knowledge, intel, like, so, you know, uh, but it would still seem very crazy to invite to your dinner party. If you're going to have like 12 people, uh, you know, a demonologist, uh, a priest who studies ancient history, <laughs> because for the masses, that would just be crazy stories of some sort of religious nonsense, they would say. And so it's crazy that that's, that's the truth, you know, there is intel in ancient indigenous narratives. And that's why people of that kind get brought into conversations with people who are really looking for strategic military advantage. And it's like what I was just saying. I mean, I've had a lot of people uh, from the world of the military asking me, what's the credibility of portal technology in Iraq? Do you know something about that? And they're asking because their peers are telling them what they were involved with in that incursion, but they can't ask the higher-ups. And so they have to come to people like me who are mythologists or scholars of the Bible and say, is this credible? Do you know anything about this? And I have to say, well, if you read the Sumerian texts and the biblical texts, if you wanted to find portal technology on planet Earth, those texts would direct you to Iraq. Scientifically, you can go to the public pages on NASA's website to realize that we've been researching portal technology for more than 30 years. 30 years ago, NASA was already asking the question, can we fly a craft into the portal that opens adjacent to planet Earth every eight minutes? Well, if that's what they were asking 30 years ago, goodness only knows what they've done since. I was reading a book yesterday, Barry Dowling, Presbyterian minister, wrote this book in 1968. And he said that he was getting people, he was living in the UK, I think at the time, though he's an American, and he was getting people from the RAF inviting him to meetings because they wanted to ask him questions about ET contact because it was their job to report close encounters and then not to ask questions. And so because they couldn't ask the higher-ups, they asked Barry to come and talk to them about it. Eric von Daniken had exactly the same experience. I'm having the same experience today never considered that because if you think and obviously there's the chain of command in in the military and in all these these functions so you can't just go up to your general if you were uh, private or you know and he told you to do something and then you see something weird and then if you ask him obviously he can just tell you shut up and you are going to then have to there's no way you can live with potentially some sort of world altering experience and then so yeah it would make sense that they would start seeking you guys out i've never actually made that connection but that makes sense because there are so many you guys are a wealth of knowledge for that and if they're not getting the answers which of, of course they're not going to give you them any answers because why would they they've got to come to you guys and uh, i'm curious as well since uh, we talked about the, the the ark of the covenant there are also some kings in the bible that are that are interesting king solomon being obviously the biggest and most well 
well known, I would say. Uh, he had his temple was an interesting story. I'm curious though about there's such a fascination with the bloodlines and the genealogy of kings and going down through this line. Are you of the nature that they have some sort of relation to the extraterrestrials? I know that's uh, that, that's kind of a theory for some people that they are either related uh, to the extraterrestrials. They're a hybrid version of that, and and that's continuing today into the royals that we even see now to some extent. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, the Sumerian answer to the question is very interesting because the Sumerian story is that there was a long time when our human ancestors were governed by non-human beings. Uh, and then you have the crossover king Gilgamesh, who is uh, part human, part sky people. And then after that, you've got the human kings and queens. So that sort of spells it out really clearly that the sky people want to keep their hands on the reins some. They're just not going to go home and, and let things go to chaos. It's a little bit like, I think, what we do when we invade each other's countries, where we go in and initially we have to be there with visible force. We have to overpower the country with our military and with our navy. But once you've set up the legal system and you've set the commodity prices and the exchange rates, you can begin saying, appoint your own police. Now we've written the laws, appoint your own judges, appoint your own school teachers. And then after a while, you can go home. Because if you've set all those prices and exchange rate mechanisms, you can go home and still enjoy sitting at the top of the economic tree. Uh, all the diamonds and gold are still going to come your way, so on and so forth. And so you don't have to have any visible presence at all. You don't even have to control the general elections you will still benefit. And so it would be entirely possible for a scenario like that. And yet, you look at royal history, and the desire to keep royal bloodlines pure is as alive today as it was thousands of years ago when Gilgamesh came king. I mean, when I was a boy, I was uh, read the story of the princess and the pea. I don't know if you know that, but the whole idea of that story is that a prince can only marry a princess. And the girl has to prove she's a princess. Can't marry a commoner. And that's really still the case today. Now, some people might listen and say, oh, hold on just a minute. Um, Harry married Meghan. She's not a royal. She's not part of a royal bloodline, is she? <laughs> Actually, yes. And there's been some very interesting studies done on the uh, succession of... U.S. presidents. And the argument has been made that the successful candidate, there may be a couple of exceptions to this by now, but the successful candidate is always the one who's got the stronger bloodline connection to the European royal families. Well, that's a little bit suspicious in a democracy, isn't it? Uh, many people have seen a photograph from uh, the early 20th century where there are, I think it's nine crowned heads of State of independent European countries who all think they're independent countries, and yet you're actually looking at a single family. They are all the descendants or relatives through marriage of John William Friso. Uh, how is that possible? So keeping bloodlines pure and undiluted 
means something in royal circles. Now, it may be as simple as there's a handful of families who have power and they don't want that diluted. But you put that alongside the stories of the handover from E.T. to human kings. I think there's something there. You can find it in African story as well. The story of the uh, the Oba handing over to the Ojisu. You'll hear that from the uh, Yoruba and the Edo people. It's the same thing. E.T. kings hand over to human kings, but it has to be the right human kings. And as I mentioned earlier in the Bible, you've got Yahweh who gets forced to hand over uh, the chains of office to human successor to Saul. But you read the stories that follow, and he's still defining foreign policy for as long as there's still monarchy uh, among the Hebrew people. So I think that's, that's a long answer to your short question. But yes, I think the influences are still there. Uh, I think that we've not been left entirely on our own. And there's a reason the families who run things want to keep power. There's a, an amazing book, Who Runs Britain? Friends in High Places by Jeremy Paxman. Now, Jeremy Paxman worked for the BBC for 25 years. He was the front man for Newsnight, you know, the top news program in Britain, really. And he pointed out that in Great Britain, after 500 years of reformation, revolutions, civil wars, labor movements, world wars, political reforms, it's still the same five families running the country who ran it in the 1500s. So the persistence of old powers is something to be wondered at. And it's such a strange thing in the U.S. as well, because sitting here is a book that I've only dived into a little bit. It's called The Power Elite. I think it's C. Wright Mills. And uh, it's a story of the American power structure and system and the way things are run. I think he passed away maybe in the 60s or 70s maybe the 80s, perhaps. But it tells the story of the fact that the centralization of power in the US is there's this power struggle between the new, like let's say the, the, the burgeoning tech kind of facilities and all that new money that's coming in there, and these old families. And these old families are heavily centered in eastern part of uh, the, the US with ties, obviously, to Europe. And that they have different rules and different sets of things. And it's not a meritocracy in that bloodlines and, and genes and family matter way more than, uh, you know, than what you can do or what your, what your goals are for, for humanity or for your society. And it's about belonging to this family. And it's a fascinating read just in this first little, you know, few <laughs> chapters that I've gotten through. And I, I, I'm always curious how that's playing out across the world. Like, is that, are we to say then? That they have, and that's another thing that everyone likes to discuss. Uh, you know, the centralization of power, like you, like you explained, is what they are after, and that would be nice for any ruler if you can just sit here and everything flows through your little pathway. Uh, does it point to, in your eyes, a move towards this one-world type of, or is are we do we already live under that structure and we're just unaware? That's the hidden hand. It, it kind of has it. And so we have these calls like we're going to be in a one world government, this, you know, and all this. And maybe it's already, they already have control over things. I don't know. Well, I think people are right to be very concerned about centralized power uh, and right to be concerned about non accountable power. Very often, 
people who are concerned will look institutions for a clue that that's going on. You know, they'll look to the Vatican or the World Health Organization or, or the World Bank. And yes, we should certainly scrutinize those. But, um, you know, we're in a world where corporations are more powerful than nations. And so I think some of the international power is quite invisible. It's difficult for people to identify where the power is, who the elites are, who are calling the shots. And I should say, to be fair, even the elites are not all agreed as to what should happen next. You know, you go to an elite banking family, they don't all think the same thing. So it's not a monolithic thing, but people should be concerned about centralized power. But there is, I take encouragement from a story in the Bible, in 1 Samuel 8, which goes back to this period where we were absolutely overwhelmed by the power of more advanced uh, beings who had colonized our planet. Yahweh was just one of a number of Elohim powerful beings governing over humans. And yet we read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the indigenous leaders, the tribal elders, come together and they say, we're going to confront Yahweh and we're going to tell him we're not going to work for him anymore. No more beef, lamb, virgin girls and gold for him. We're going to have a human leader for human society. Let's confront him. And they do that and Yahweh has to surrender the top job. Now, as I say, he does slink off and start pulling strings from behind closed doors, but they do get rid of him. And when I first read that as, as a young evangelical Christian, I couldn't get my head around it. Why would you sack Almighty God and think a human king is going to give you a better advantage on the battlefield? Once I realized that the Yahweh stories are stories of a being, not of Almighty God, you begin evaluating the story differently. And I came to realize that that story arc is the story arc of not every dragon narrative in the world, but a whole family of dragon narratives that date from about 10,000 years ago that describe a period of social progress. Talk about the time when our ancestors had had enough of working for visible non-human elites, and they came to the point of saying, no more, we'll confront, what can they do? They can only kill us. They reached a point where terror had been overused, and they said, no more, we're going to go over to another system. And that is what happened. That is really the punchline of, of the dragon narrative, that when we can overcome fear and love each other more than we fear the higher ups, then we can make social progress. And that's true whether you're dealing with dragons or an autocrat human government. I had the exact excuse me, discussion with uh, Tom Campbell last night on this, he, he, he came to the same conclusion as you, that if, if we have the ability to not give in to the fear, because it, it is the fear and the terror that is used as the means of control, right? Don't step out of line. If you simply can get enough people to switch and start getting momentum in that feelings of love or compassion, cooperation and wanting stability, hoping for peace, pushing for peace and all those things, rather than the terror you know, divisive stuff. So there's, there's pretty much nothing they can do. There's nothing. What are, what are they going to do? If you, if you've given into that, you're, you're good. And so 
it, it, it also reminds me of something that I always ask uh, people who, who come on the show, which is after studying all of this uh, and getting so deep into the knowledge, how much of what you've taken from their teachings do you incorporate into your daily life? Like, because there's going to be some people who are going to be fascinated with everything that we've just talked about. What could you give to someone for is whether they're trying to better their lives? What did the ancients say about that? Uh, trying to have a peaceful life, happier life, manifest uh, love, wealth, uh, et cetera. What does that sort of, is there anything from what you've researched that touches on how we should structure our daily lives in that sense? That's a huge question. Uh, first of all, I would start where, where we just left off, which is learning to discover the power of love and solidarity, because you don't need to dethrone any elites or even dethrone autocratic government to make huge progress through solidarity, because through solidarity, we can create more local economies. We can benefit from helping each other in our businesses. We can help each other by creating stakeholder companies. We can help each other simply by buying locally. There are huge things we can do with all the power still in place simply by recovering the idea of love and solidarity, which is how our more recent ancestors got through, for instance, the depression of the 1930s. But for me, one of the things that's been really exciting out of this research is when your story of human origins changes, your understanding of human potential changes. Because all the narratives that I found that talk about us being genetically modified by visitors in the past, they all talk about a time when our ancestors were smarter than we are today. We were better at future viewing. We had better farsight or what we might call remote viewing. We had better empathy and telepathic connection with one another. We had better self-healing ability. And that all this was somehow dumbed down. So you go to the Popol Vuh, which is the Mayan story of Hewitt Origins. And there's, uh, I love that story because it's so frank about the difficulties the feathered serpents had in producing Homo sapiens, clever enough to be a workforce, but not so smart. We didn't want to work for them. And we come to the moment, uh, which repeats all around the world, where we are too smart to be managed. And so the Feathered Serpents hold an emergency meeting. Quetzalcoatl, for goodness sake, you've overshot the mark. Can you dumb them down? All right, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll find something. So Quetzalcoatl goes away and he comes up with a vapor that when sprayed over human populations, brain damages us to the point where the higher cognitive abilities are impaired. And we're now limited to our five physical senses. So we only know what's happening right in front of us. And for anything else, we need an authority to tell us what's what. Bingo, say the feathered servants. We can work with that. That echoes in African story, biblical story, Sumerian story, this dumbing down story. The Nigerians have a wonderful version of it. They tell the story of Abasi and Atai who uh, have produced the human race. They go on a holiday, they come back, and we're now dominating the planet. How are we going to manage these? Don't worry, I'll come up with something, uh, says the wife. She goes away and she says, I'll come up with devices that if we reduce, uh, put them into the environment, 
will reduce the physical health and mental health of the human beings, then we can manage them. And there's actually, these are awful stories when you think about it. I mean, who does that glorify? It doesn't glorify our ancestors or the visitors, but there is a positive take home, which is that in our DNA is still all the potential for higher cognitive abilities. All we need to do is make sure our environment is clean, that our air is clean, that our land is clean, that our food and water are as clean as we can get them. Because if we do that, we will find our higher cognitive abilities will start firing up again. And that's not fantasy. There is a real field of scientific research uh, among neuroscientists around the world studying a phenomenon called acquired savant syndrome. And if you know about this, Will, it's an amazing topic. No, 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 no. This is crazy interesting. I need to know more. Well, this is real peer-reviewed science. And this is where a person may have a head injury central nervous system event, stroke, um, may go into a coma. And then when they recover, they have a phenomenal ability that they didn't have before. So they may be able to speak a language they couldn't speak before, play a musical instrument they couldn't play before, be a brilliant artist in a way they never were before, have phenomenal abilities in mathematics and physics that they didn't have before. And so these neuroscientists are saying, how come... These abilities are in our brains in the off position. I mean, a brain injury should make you less smart, not more What are these abilities doing there latent? And if we can switch them on with an accident, can we switch them on deliberately? So our scientists are asking that question, whereas our shamanic traditions all around the planet have been answering that question for thousands of years because our mystics, and our shamanic traditions have always been about switching those abilities back on, giving us the intelligence we had before, helping you and me to have better future sight, sight, empathy, telepathic connection, self-healing. That's what the shamanic traditions are all about. And that's why someone like Plato, who was engaging with shamanic traditions two and a half thousand years ago, had his world overturned by that and devoted his life to making human beings more intelligent and more conscious. So that's kind of the take home for me as well from my research. It's not just about what happened in the past. It's what is possible for you and me. How smart, how conscious can we be? And then how do we bring that in the way we organize as a society? If we're more conscious and more intelligent, then we can find better ways to live on this I've been fascinated in having these discussions because so many of you guys who do this, you know, at, at such a deep level are all coming up <clears throat> with this statement, with this understanding of these latent abilities, these latent powers that they're, it's not, it's not, okay, you're from here and I'm from here. So you've got a special power and I don't, it's no, it's, we have it, you've got it. It's in the off switch. There are things you can do <laughs> and uh, and it seems that, you know, the, the capabilities and the powers, let's say, uh, for one are almost infinite. It seems that there's always a ladder and level for you to climb and keep going and you can, you know, get, you can get smarter, you can, you know, be more intuitive and, and all these things. And so it's incredibly fascinating. And also because I'm curious as well, given that you're, you're studying these historical traditions, what about psychedelic drugs or things? and being mixed in with 
uh, the past. I know there's a lot of talk and discussion for either how psychedelics potentially could have given rise to uh, furthering our intelligence or religions and connections to to the gods. What is what have you found in that in that regard for for the past? Yeah. Oh, it's a really interesting topic because, as you say, right now, um, paleoanthropologists are suggesting that it may have been exposure to psychedelics that help ancient hominids advance and become homo sapiens. And they're suggesting that a psychedelic experience, which may have been accidental, you know, eating the wrong mushroom or whatever it might be, or, or drinking some tea that's gone off, might have given people a psychedelic experience. And all of a sudden, you've got our ancestors having imaginative experiences that they've not had before, and maybe that valve in their brain stays in the on position, so they can now imagine things different to how they are. Now, human curiosity can become human progress, can become human technology. So that's in our mainstream science right now. You go to mythology, you'll find something pretty similar. When the storyteller in Genesis 3 wants to talk about making human beings more intelligent, where they eat something, don't they? And it suddenly makes them more conscious, more intelligent. You go to the Sumerian story of Enkidu, the primitive human. How are we going to upgrade him so that he can become a civilization, so that he can live in a city and live in a specialized society? Well, Shamhat, this female entity, introduces Enkidu to foods and fermented drinks and suddenly his brain starts working a little differently and again this brings me back to plato again because plato was so confident about some of the things he said about the nature of the cosmos the nature of our planet the nature of paleocontact the nature of human evolution and how it had been assisted because he had had psychedelic experiences brought him information from other dimensions and he's completely open that that's where he got some of his information from from the eleusinian mysteries he ingested something called kaikion or kukion which was a a fermented tea very similar to what people might drink in central and south america and then he describes the experience of contact with interdimensional beings he says this happened to Socrates, but he describes it with such interiority. I think he had the same experience himself. He talks about the Eleusinian mysteries and then the cult of Orpheus and the cult of Hecate, and they all did ceremonies like that. So I think it has a role. I think it has a role today in helping us. I think one of the reasons that for instance, that infusion of oils that I mentioned from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, was illegalized in ancient Jewish society. Only priests could have it. I think that connects with why certain substances have been illegalized in the present day, initially in the States and then around the world. Got nothing to do with public health, but it's to do with keeping people uh, more anxious uh, than they need to be. Uh, less united than they could be, because I think we've been given plants for food and medicine and higher consciousness to support our progress as a species, not just in terms of 
building cities or becoming a civilization, but being more conscious, being more in touch and able to build a different kind of human society. It's ever more clear to most people uh, if they've ever experienced anything within those that, that pantheon of uh, natural um, plants and things versus what you get from uh, alcohol. And you just look at what's, what's promoted, what's the result of this. Obviously, anything, any substance, any whatever can be abused. But even in its small forms, as you can see that they're starting to use potentially psilocybin to treat uh, patients who are coming in from therapy. And it's like, well, are we using alcohol? Do we use alcohol to do that? Do we, do we come in and we say, have a shot of vodka here and, and over and over and, or do, and a small dose? Or It doesn't make any sense when you start looking at it. Why are we using this in a therapeutic way and why this one not? And why are we glorifying this one and then saying that this one's illegal? And if you just look at those two things and you start to wonder why something's wrong and you should immediately feel that it's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, and last question, since I know we're, we're, we're finishing up here. I have a, a question on, so the Epic of Gilgamesh, Atlantis, pyramids, all these stories that kind of have this mix, right? And you can tell some of a mix from the Bible. I know people are unaware of the connections. A lot of people, let's say, are unaware of the connections between Noah and the Epic of Gilgamesh and all the other stories that you can find in, in other cultures and how they, they, they match. I'm curious if you think some of the societies that we had in the past, did they ever get it right? Was there ever a golden age? I know some of the, the prevailing theories are that there was a time when potentially like we kind of got it right. We had a good balance between nature. We had an understanding of our higher cognitive abilities, whether this is Atlantis or any place, just some place here on earth. What do you think on that? Or do, does the, do, do the text describe a time when things were, we got it, we did it, and we're happy here, and this is how it should be, and then fall from grace? Yes, I think the idea of a golden age can be found in many um, mythological traditions around the world. I think that civilization on planet Earth is far older than we've ever imagined. By the time you get to the 11th chapter of Genesis, I actually think you've probably read about five planetary race civilizations we know nothing about. I think there was a civilization on Pangaea that we don't know anything about because by now it's been ground to a powder. Uh, the conventional wisdom is that civilization as we know it began 10,000 years ago, and yet we can find megalithic remains of cities prior to that date that are underwater, you know, off the coast of Japan. India, so on and so forth. So there's been plenty of time for us or our predecessors to have gotten it right. But coming back to Plato, I agree with him that every so often something will happen that will create a cataclysmic condition on our planet that means we have to start again from scratch. And so we then have to try and recover the wisdom of the ancients to try and get things working in the present. And I think it's often a battle against human beings looking for ascension and a better experience, and then the agendas of those who want control of human society, want a manageable human society. And very often there is um, a sequestering and a theft of ancient narratives 
in order to maintain narrative control. The Christian church has done this almost in every part of the planet where it's invaded, negating the indigenous wisdom that was there, burning the books uh, of, the, of the civilization that was there before, because the invaders are not interested in another golden age. They're looking for resources. And so there's always this battle. And in Echoes of Eden, I argue that the knowledge from the Golden Age never goes away. It always finds a way of resurfacing. It's protected by secret societies. It's buried in the desert in forgotten texts. But it will always resurface because I think we know deep in our bones we can have a better experience than this. And there is almost a genetic memory of a Golden Age, knowing that harmony is possible knowing that love as a social experience is possible and that we don't need to live in a world of separation and conflict that were one in which you and I have grown up in. Perfect words to end on. Uh, Paul, it's been awesome. We did not exhaust all of my questions, which uh, means that we're going to have to do this again uh, sometime because I've got some more here. But it's been awesome. We'll, we'll link, obviously, to all of your books, you guys. Please go check them out. Uh, check out your, your YouTube channel. We'll link to everything, obviously, and your, your website. Is there any place specific that you want to send people to, to check things out? Uh, you can find me uh, on Fifth Kind TV and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. You can come to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. And if you go to Amazon, you'll find all my books from Escaping from Eden through to the Eden Conspiracy. Awesome. Guys, Paul, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Oh, Will. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.